Welcome to King Street Church Podcast. We hope this message blesses you as much as it has blessed us. If you would like to sow into what God is doing here at King Street Church, head over to kingstreet.church. That's kingst.church. Thanks again for listening, and now on to the message. Would you welcome Brother Luke as he comes? Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all. Y'all can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter number four. When uh, me and David started talking about me teaching on Wednesday nights uh, recently, you know, he asked what I wanted to do and I didn't have to hesitate. I immediately knew Galatians was what I needed to do because, uh, you know, it's to really embody a revelation, to really live it out. There has to be a transition point sometimes between something just being head knowledge to being embedded in the spirit. And if you'd asked me 10 years ago, do you understand the doctrine of imputed righteousness? Do you understand the idea that uh, he who knew no sin became sin in the flesh, that we would become the righteousness of God? And I would have said, yes, we would have passed the test if it had been true and false. And I even thought I understood it at the heart because it was helpful to me. But uh, about February or March of this year, you know, we had a series of, of revival meetings take place around this concept in Galatians chapter four. And I'm telling you the single most important revelation I've ever received from God, I think at the level of in the spirit, um, absolutely felt like I was being carried into a different world. Like I, I was at, I was in one place and then a few days later I was just in a different, well, I've, I told multiple people that we, I just feel like I'm living in a different world from last week. And so, so I immediately wanted to begin to, uh, speak on, on the book of Galatians and especially on this fourth chapter, we hit it last Wednesday and I felt like we hit water and David was just like, you know, just do that again on Sunday. So we're just going to do it again. You know, repetition's valuable. If I gave my kids a test, I just finished just several years working as a school teacher. If I gave my kids a test without doing a review, they would have me mobbed. You know, they would have lynched me over it, you know. So, uh, it's okay if you heard this because trust me, you'll need to hear it again and again for it to uh, get ingrained in us. But Galatians chapter four and verse one, it says this, it says, now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, differs nothing from a slave, even though he is Lord of all, but he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. I'll, I'll need to be brief doing this, but I just want to give a little background to what's happening in the book of Galatians up until this point. What's happening is in the city of Galatia, you have a group of people that uh, were trying to reimpose the Old Testament law on New Testament saints. And they were trying to tell the, the church in Galatia, many of whom were Gentiles, some of whom had been Jews that had experienced deliverance from the law when Peter had the revelation of the sheet and rise, kill, and eat, and so forth. Uh, but some of them could not part with legalism. They could not part with the law. They insisted that they had to, you know, uh, wear your yarmulke and, and uh, you know, uh, hold this Sabbath and celebrate this holiday and don't eat 
pork and don't eat shrimp and uh, all the things that were uh, the ceremonial law of Israel, they were trying to reimpose. And Paul has some pretty harsh words for it. You know, they were trying to force a lot of uh, people into some minor surgical procedures that don't seem so minor when it's happening to you. Uh, and, uh, and they're trying to impose the old covenant. They're trying to impose the law again. And Paul goes so far as to say, you were running a good race, but now someone has bewitched you. He actually uses occult language to describe this teaching because he's saying in the same way that the occult is trying to manipulate things, he says you're trying to manipulate people into their own righteousness through threats of a law that's no longer hanging over the believer. And Galatians 2 and 3 is going to go on to explain how before God ever gave the law to Moses, he had made a promise to Abraham and even uses this language that he preached the gospel to Abraham. And here's what Galatians, I think it's chapter 3, says is the gospel God preached to Abraham. In your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, so God told Abraham a promise because of someone who's going to come from your descent, who was Jesus, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And now you have people in this day that were saying, actually, you need to be shoved back into Judaism before you can be blessed. And, and, uh, Paul begins to explain what was the purpose of the law. And the purpose of the law was to be a schoolmaster. This is what this text I just read said that would lead us to Christ. There's this pivotal moment in Exodus where God shows up and begins to give the law. But when he, he God shows up in his presence, the, the mountains of Mount Sinai catches on fire and angels start flying around. They're blowing shofar trumpets and the angels proclaim a warning. You know, nobody approach this unholy or even an animal will stone you or shoot you with an arrow, you know, and, uh, uh, and the people are afraid to go into the presence of God. So they go to Moses and they say, Moses, you go up the mountain and uh, we'll just do whatever you tell us to do. And I, this is this is what I believe. I, th- I want to say it was John Bevere is where I first heard this theory from, but you don't have to agree with this. But I believe that God probably didn't even intend the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. I don't think that was his perfect will. I think what happened is Israel rejected being led of the Lord in that way and said, you talk to Moses instead. And so God said, all right, I'll use the external law to, to keep you under control for long enough to keep Israel close enough to purity until the day that Jesus is going to come. Um, And so uh, he says, listen, the promise, the law never undid the promise that was made to Abraham 400 years before the law ever came to Moses. And so, so he's, but he's trying to tell these people, we're not, we don't need the schoolmaster anymore if we can come into maturity. And he uses this example that a king is, a prince is no different than a slave, even though he's the king of all, uh, as long as he's immature, right? In monarchy, back in the old days when kings ruled countries, uh, you know, sometimes you would have this tragic situation where the king would die and the new king is like seven years old and Lord help us, right? Uh, so what would happen is they would appoint someone who was called a, a, a regent and they would rule in the king's stead until the king reached a state of maturity. Now in that time, he's still the king, but he doesn't have access to all of his authority. And he says the law was basically a regent. He, he was The law was intended to train us until we could uh, be prepared to be led of the Holy Ghost. And so, so he says here in... Uh, uh, 
And so he begins to build uh, to, uh, to verse 21 where we'll go in a second. But first, so here's the question. If, if we can't reach the fullness of our authority until we get to maturity, well, how do we get to maturity becomes a really important question, right? And so the answer to that, I believe, is found in Hebrews chapter number five. If you want to keep one bookmark in Galatians and flip to Hebrews real fast. Hebrews chapter 5, in verse 12, it says, uh, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So he, he tells, so here the writer of Hebrews is telling the people, you're in a state of immaturity such that you're consuming milk and not meat. And why is that? This translation says, because they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. Let me read this from another translation uh, real quick. It says uh, this passage. Um, in verse 11, it says, you have much to say about this topic, although it's difficult to explain because you have become too dull and sluggish to understand. For you should already be professors instructing others by now, but instead you need to be taught from the beginning the basics of God's prophetic oracles. You're like children still needing milk and not yet ready to digest solid food. For every spiritual infant who lives on milk is not yet pierced by the revelation of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature whose spiritual senses perceive heavenly matters. And they have been adequately trained by what they've experienced to emerge with understanding of the difference between what is truly excellent and what is evil and harmful. So that's a pretty big difference there on that word skilled or pierced. What happens is that word that was translated unskilled in righteousness, it's a Greek word a pyros, a means without, uh, and uh it basically means untested, but if you go far enough back into how the word came to be, it meant to be untested as though by combat, it pierros ultimately comes back to having been pierced uh, as though by a sword. And so you could just as easily translate this idea of being unskilled in righteousness. What is causing these people to be immature? They, they're not pierced in the deep place of who they are by the revelation of the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm answering an altar call around this idea three or four months ago, and I, I don't see things very much up to this point. Uh, I'm not going to say that it'll continue like that. Uh, but I, I see this kind of visual in my head. If y'all know the story in Judges, right, that where there's this really fat king who's sitting on the throne, and uh, uh, the judge named Ehud comes with a sword, and he actually stabs him while he's on the toilet, which is amazing. And uh, and he begins to, to he assassinates this wicked king, and he puts the sword in so deep, and the man was so fat that the, the dagger is literally swallowed up inside of the man's belly. Uh, all the way into where he can't recover the blade. It goes in all the way to the hilt. And I don't know why they didn't put this on the flannel graph when I was a kid, because I'm sure it would have been every kid's favorite Bible story if we'd have had the guts to tell them. If, if people, if kids knew there were Bible stories about fat guys getting stabbed to death on the toilet, that would be, 
And instead, we got to do Daniel in the Lion's Den again. Like, I thought we just did that one, Pastor. Uh, but, I mean, tell me, oh, tell me a 12-year-old wouldn't love that story, my Lord. So, so, but I see this visual of this story unfolding in my head. It's not a great visual, uh, but, uh, but I just, this idea that it needs to go so deep that you can't go grab the blade out. It needs to be in a part of you in a deep place. And what happens is there's, uh, Hebrews here is using a figure of a, of a weaning, of a transition from milk to meat. And it says the missing piece is understanding righteousness. Yeah. As long as we don't understand that we've been made righteous in Christ, we'll remain in immaturity. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, so let me show you one more story here. I'm going to have to, for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize the Genesis narrative real brief. But uh, I will read a couple verses here in Genesis uh, chapter number, I believe it's 19, 20, excuse me. 21. So a little background to where we're picking this story up. Abraham has been given a promise at the age of 75 that he's going to become a father to many nations. And this is uh, an interesting thing because, you know, he's 75 and he's waited now. Uh, if I remember the timeline correctly, I think it's about 16 years and his wife, Sarah or Sarai at the time, uh, has a strange idea, uh, that she will come to regret immediately thereafter. Uh, and, uh, at the time she had a slave girl named Hagar and Sarai goes to Abram and says, uh, Abram, I know we had the promise from God. This obviously isn't working. Why don't you have a kid by my slave girl? Now, none of this is anything close to what it ought to have been, but that is how the world was in those days. The ancient world was something. <laughs> Anyone who tells you this is the worst it's ever been, just, oh, I got a couple history books I could show you. Okay. So, so uh, I mean, this is like the most righteous dude in the world, right, that we're talking about. He's got multiple wives and slaves. Okay. So, so Abraham uh, has this idea uh, or is given this idea by his wife, and, and he, uh, you know, goes into Hagar, the slave girl, and they conceive a child uh, named Ishmael. Now, I do want to say this, that, uh, you know, it, we would take for granted, right, when if God told someone today, you know, you're going to have a child at an old age, you would take for granted that the wife was going to be involved in it. But Abraham's living in a different cultural space. He shouldn't have been, but that's where he was. And so where where is the fault line where this idea comes from? And it comes, I believe, from the fact that Sarai w did not hear her name in the words to Abraham. If if you go, there's three three or four different times God appears to Abraham. God never explicitly says Sarah is involved until the very last time when Abraham is 99. But what happens is Sarah should have understood that the word given to those that she's connected to and under authority of is uh, to her as well. 
right? So uh, whether that's to a husband in a marriage or to a pastor in a church family or whatever it is, when you're under someone's authority and connection, you need to hear yourself in the word. that if when, when the Lord speaks to Pastor David and says, here's what we need to do for a season. Let's get together and proclaim some promises. Get together and proclaim some promises because what's happening is the entire family is being invited into a prophetic opportunity, you know, and, and it doesn't, it's not dependent on uh, whether you were the first one to heard the word. If you're in alignment with the house, accept, accept some responsibility for the word that comes to the house. So, so Sarah doesn't hear herself in the word to Abram. And so she thinks, well, I don't know, maybe it's Hagar. And for, if you're Abraham, maybe this makes a little more sense because Hagar, I'm presuming was younger. You know, uh, this is maybe a little less miraculous of a thing. Uh, you know, uh, it's still, you know, pushing it for Abraham. But, uh, you know, it makes more sense than Sarah, who's, you know, uh, you know, almost his age. And um, so so what happens is they, they have the child Ishmael. Sarah immediately regrets it, tries to kick Ishmael out the house as soon as he's born. God says, no, no, go back. But what happens is we finally reach when Abraham is 100. It finally happens that Isaac is born, the child that God had promised that the seed would come through. Uh, but something uh, something happens at the moment where Isaac was weaned, and that's what connects this passage uh, to Hebrews, this concept of weaning. So uh, Genesis 21 and verse 8, it says, So the child grew, Isaac, and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. And therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the manner was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or the bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. Now, I love that in the, the story of Ishmael that God cares enough for Abraham that he's going to take care of Ishmael too, right? Isn't it comforting to know that you can make mistakes and God's still going to bring good out of them, right? He, he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of Ishmael, and I don't think God has ever measured greatness by numbers and political power. God has a purpose for the children. There's going to be a great revival come to those people at some point in time. And we're going to see uh, that word be fulfilled. But in the meantime, God says, there's a situation here where Ishmael has done something uh, that is publicly humiliating, embarrassing, mocking, and diminishing Isaac in public at this feast that's in his honor. And Sarah immediately realizes they're not going to be able to live in the same house. And... There's this, uh, you know, I heard one preacher, I can't remember who it was, uh, you know, made the, said, have you ever had a miracle and a mistake and you know they both look like you? Uh, and that's what Abraham's dealing with, right? And and so he's, he's dealing with the fact that there's something that was born of the flesh and then there was something that was born of the promise. And I don't believe that Abraham was without faith when he conceived Ishmael. I think his faith was an immaturity. 
yeah. right? Because he's still, the reality is when God gives a word, at some point you still have to step on it, right? And God says, go to the nations. You can't wait for the helicopter to land in your yard. Uh, but it's also doesn't mean you have to go take the first train out either, right? There's something about timing. And what happens is Abraham in impatience uh, begins to negotiate down the dream and begins to think through contingencies and and he lets lets himself get talked down into this idea but I do think he was trying to act on what he heard uh, but nonetheless it was immature because matured faith is willing to say actually God I'm going to wait until I'm not going to do anything except what I see the father doing so so Abraham in an immature faith has created something by self-will to try to get to the promise in his own strength. And now what he's tried to do by self-will is mocking the promise in its immaturity. What, remember Ishmael would have been a teenager at this time and he's picking on his little brother, you know, uh, evidently pretty severely. Um, uh, he's picking on his little brother, humiliating because of the fact that he is in an immature state. And so God's instruction, Sarah's instruction to Abraham and God says she's right on this one is kick Ishmael out of the house. And we see God still takes care of Ishmael in the natural and so on. Uh, but, but this brings us back to Galatians because right where we left off earlier, it's, this is all going to tie together. So, oh, I used a bookmark. Genius. Okay. Uh, Galatians 4.21 says, tell me you who desire to be under the law. So you people that are still trying to drag everyone into legalism and the old covenant way of doing things. And the old covenant way of doing things in this case is I'm never going to hear anything from God. I'm going to have the pastor go up the mountain and you tell me what to do and I'll do it. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now, which now is, and which is in bondage to her children. So he says one covenant, the old covenant, he connects to, uh, Mount Sinai where God delivered the law. Uh, and he says that, uh, this is, uh, can symbolically be connected to the idea of Hagar and Ishmael. It's, it's self effort, right? And, and by the works of the law, no one was ever justified, right? Um, you know, even those that were right by God in the Old Testament, it was not because they had been able to keep the law perfectly. It's just because they had faith in the sacrifices they were making the Messiah that was coming. Um, and so um, it says this then. So one is Mount Sinai, which corresponds to the Jerusalem, which now is, that is, uh, you know, the Jewish religion of the time. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. In fact, that word above could mean ahead of. But the Jerusalem that is above or ahead of us is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one. And this is a quotation from Isaiah. You who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she that has a husband. 
Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? It says, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So what did we say is the marker that leads us into maturity, that leads us out of guardians and stewards into functioning as royals? The revelation of righteousness. What, when does Ishmael raise his voice to mock Isaac at weaning day? What, what's the thing that moves us from milk to solid food? Righteousness. When we begin to move from milk to solid food, when we begin to move from being driven by the law to being driven by the spirit. But when I talk about the law, I'm not, I talk bad about the law. I'm not saying we just do whatever and sin is good. No, no, no. We're talking about we're now, uh, what the, the law had to be externalized because people weren't transformed. And now we've become living epistles. The law of God is written on our hearts. We become, um, Led of the Spirit, we were given a new nature that is uh, that is uh, in that is like God, that that, that is holy. Uh, but what happens is when we receive the message that we've been made righteous in Christ by His sacrifice. Uh, immediately Ishmael begins to rise up with accusation and point to all the immaturity and begin to say, uh, "No, no, you're not." Yeah. Right. And so what happens is we start dealing with listening to the voice of, of Ishmael mocking us, saying that we're not good enough, that we're, that we're not holy enough, that God couldn't possibly receive us, God couldn't possibly use us, God couldn't possibly, I'm, you know, uh, at best we're just a servant working for the Lord because we can't really believe that we're a son. We're still doing, we're still doing that prodigal son speech where we say, Father, I know I'm not going to be a son tonight, but if you could just let me be one of your hired men. We're still rehearsing that sermon because Ishmael is talking to us and reminding us all these things that Jesus has forgotten. Yeah. Right. So Hebrews, Hebrews begins to explain why the new covenant priesthood and the order of Melchizedek, of which Jesus is, is the chief, you know, why that's greater than the Old Testament priesthood. He said the Old Testament priesthood, every year they had to make the same sacrifice for the same sin. They pushed it off for a time, but the fact that they had to keep making the sacrifice was constantly reminding them of all their failure. And Hebrews uh, chapter 9 is going to say that, it, uh, that the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works that we can serve the living God. And the thing is, you can't actually serve the living God right if you can't receive a cleansed conscience. And so we are we are acquitted by God and content, insist on putting ourselves on probation. We insist on taking a P-test twice a week. And maybe if we've been clean for six months, you know, maybe they'll drop the sentence of hanging over, hanging over our head, right? People, how many of you ever gotten saved like 12 times? By that, I don't mean actually really, but you answer the altar call to get saved 100 times, right? Because you just were sure, well, I hadn't been perfect since last time. 
There, there used to be a verse, me and Dave were talking about this the other week. There used to be a verse that terrified me when I was a kid that he said, it says, you know, Jesus says, many are they that are going to say, you know, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do mighty wonders in your name? He'll say, cast out demons in your name and he'll say, depart from me for I never knew you. And it would always terrify me because I had not done anywhere near as much casting out devils and healing the sick as the people in the verse. And I'm like, if I hadn't got there and they hadn't got there and it wasn't good enough, ooh, what's this? But you notice one thing about that verse is it did not say, but Lord, Lord, I trusted in the blood of Jesus. When <laughs> he, didn't say, he didn't say, but Lord, Lord, I believe that you died in my stead. He didn't say, but Lord, Lord, I was made new and after going in the waters of baptism and receiving Jesus Christ and receiving imputed righteousness. That's not what he said. Right. But here's what happens. That, who are the people in that verse? They're people that are still keeping the scorecard trying to establish their own righteousness. And our own righteousness is as filthy rags. Yeah. Here's the thing about righteousness. It's a black or white thing. It's, it is the light switch on or off. Yeah. You have the righteousness. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ or you have filthy rags and they're not acceptable before God. Yes, sir. You're, you're as righteous as Jesus because you've got his. Yeah. Or you're unrighteous. Yeah. There's, not, there's no wiggle room. Which means that you can't grow or diminish in righteousness as long as you're in Christ. That's good. So, and what what is when we say righteousness? What does that even mean? In case because we have, if the first definition of the word in, in Strong's view, look it up, is the state of being one, uh, the state one state of being as he ought to be. God made us as we ought to be in Christ. We, in the moment we were made new, our spirit man's perfected. Hebrews 12, we've come to the, to the mountain of the living God, to this place of the spirits of just men made perfect. I know you still have all these sins you're trying to overcome. You're like, how is that me? I'm telling you, the way you're going to overcome sin is first having the faith to believe that he made you righteous. Yeah. Because we go on into chapter 5, there's a, there's a section that, that y'all are real familiar with that says, for the works of the flesh are evident. It's fornication and adultery and violence and wickedness and theft. And, th and then it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. The whole context of Galatians, what is the of the Spirit and of the flesh mean? It means self-effort. The whole thing is about them trying to reimpose the law. What is the fruit of the person who insists on living according to the law? They still fall into fornication, adultery, theft, violence, wrath, rebellion, covetousness. What is the fruit of the person who yields to receiving righteousness by the Spirit? They start walking in joy. They start loving in, in love and peace and gentleness and goodness and kindness and self-control. And somehow we took that chapter and turned it into law. Yeah. <laughs> we took that chapter and said, well, if you want to be in the spirit, you've got to do these things. Like the whole point of it, the whole point of the chapter is you'll do those things if you yield to the spirit. So... So here's what here's what happens. We still are are just uh, we're so used to being led around by the law that we don't even we don't even recognize the the way it's done. I I, I was thinking about this. I felt like the Lord gave, uh, gave me this. If you want to test if you're still being led by the law, could you lay hands on someone with lung cancer who you know they got it because they've chain smoked for fifty years and still be confident that it's the will of God to heal them? Because if not, it means you're still being influenced by the law. Wow. Because it still means there's something in you that thinks, so this person's getting what they deserve by God. <laughs> so, what? Hmm. Jesus. 
so so we we have to we have to believe that this is not about us being established in our own righteousness by works because here's the problem if you're trying to establish your own righteousness by works you will never get there I talked about I talked about this Wednesday night. How many times, you know, if if I've been doing, you know, counseling with someone, trying to fig, kind of get the state of their spiritual life, or maybe ask them just some questions like, "Well, how much are you praying, or how much are you reading the Word?" It's always the same answer, which is, well, "Not enough." What is enough? There you go. Well, I mean, that's the thing. We're 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 never going to be able to give God back what He deserves. I don't think, but I don't think he put that pressure on us to do that just to give him what we have. But, but think about that. I saw, I read a study this week. They, they did a survey of people and tried to figure out what, uh, people's expectations were for the perfect pastor. How, what they expected a pastor to do in all these different areas. How many hours do you expect him to spend in sermon preparation? How many hours do you expect him to spend in prayer? How many hours do you expect him to spend doing outreach? How many do you expect him to spend working on the business of the church? How much do you expect him to spend in visitation? And so, and they added all the hours up. And the average churchgoer expects their pastor to work 116 hours a week. Right. At some point, we always ask, well, what's enough? Well, I'm not praying enough. I'm not believing enough. You know, I'm not fasting enough. I'm not doing this. I'm not witnessing enough. And like, what is the point where if, if all of that, those are good things that should be fruit of your new nature, because the fruit of your new nature should be to desire to seek God, to desire to worship, to desire to pray, to desire to evangelize, etc. But if you're doing those things, trying to earn it, if you're putting that cart before the horse, there's literally never a, a level that you can reach that you'll say enough. Yeah. I heard a story one time from a Catholic guy entered a monastery. And this monastery still believe, I, I can't believe people still believe like this 500 years after Luther, but they, they still practice, uh, the self-flagellation, you know, the whipping, the penance by, they would literally whip themselves as penance in this particular monastery. And, uh, there was this one guy that every time he went into the room to do penance, he would just be crying out, just screaming, just shrieking. And, and the, this young new monk is convinced that, uh, this has to be the holiest of them all because listen to the, you know, the way he's mortifying his flesh, right? And finally, he just gets so curious that he gives into the temptation to, to open up the door and barge in on what his penance looks like. And he was sitting there cross-legged smoking a cigarette, whipping the wall and screaming. Ah. <laughs> And he said, and he said he was so offended as hypocrite. He's trying to, and he said years later, he realized he's actually the only one who got it in the whole monastery because he's the only one who refused the game of trying to save himself by whipping himself. Because you know what, you know what the word repentance means? The word repent means metanoia. It's meta like metamorphosis, like transformation. Noia is where we get the word knowledge or what it, it refers to. It literally means to change the way that we think. And we think it's to beat ourselves and feel like we're being holy. Right. One difference between my prayer life today and 20 years ago or 15 years ago or whenever is uh, is that the confession time is a lot shorter, and it's not because I magically stopped sinning altogether, but it's because at some point I realized God's not being pleased by me disbelieving the word that he forgave me. Yeah. So I don't have to spend 20 minutes of prayer trying to convince him to forgive me. I just have to say it once, and it's done. Yeah. 
There, right? There, there's this, we, st we still have this idea that if we just beat ourselves up a little more, feel a little bit more bad about how we've done, that'll be the key. And that's, it's not it. It's not it. And, and a lot of times, uh, the thing about dismiss, so, so what is the word of God to us? Dismiss Ishmael from the camp. Don't let the law speak to you in that way anymore. Don't let that mocking and that taunting uh, that would come against you and say, you are not righteous in Christ. You are defined by your bad habits you're still dealing with. Dismiss it from the camp. Not put it in the corner and pull it out when you really need it. That's right. Dismiss it from the camp, is what he says. Why is that difficult for us to do? For some people, it's familiarity, right? For a lot of the people in Galatia, they just could not perceive of a world where you could be holy while eating pork. Right. <laughs> or, you know, be holy while having church on a day other than Saturday. <laughs> just to mess with your religious heads even more, right? Uh, we could, they could not per perceive someone being, uh, you know, being holy and, and not uh, honoring Jewish holidays, right? So, so familiarity is one thing. Another thing is the fact that if you're Abraham, Abraham uh, had this bad idea or received this bad idea of self-effort and became intimate with it for 16 years. Yeah. Right. Notice, notice what God said to Abraham. It says, "Cast, you know, don't be afraid because of your son or the bondwoman." Right. Because he had become uh, intimate with that idea for over a decade of his life. And uh, so it's a, it's a huge thing for him to just dismiss, dismiss Hagar from the camp, let alone Ishmael, who emotionally was his firstborn son. He wasn't by the promise, but in his, in his life story, that was the first one that came out looking like his daddy, you know. And so... Uh, so he's, he's got to dismiss something that he's got connected to. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's something that we've become uh, familiar with. And then on top of that, you have the fact that why is there this random quotation from Isaiah in the middle of Galatians 4 about the son of the bondwoman? Uh, let me just read this part again because I kind of sped past it. It said... Uh, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Why is there this strange prophetic quotation from a verse that's talking about the barren woman ending up with more children than the productive one? Why? Because guess what? Abraham's self-effort bore visible fruit first. That's right. So we, a lot of times, it's the impatience in us that wants to be at a certain place at a certain time and we're negotiating how to get there and uh, instead of being led, we, we are going to the thing that is going to produce visible fruit first. If you take someone with a charismatic enough personality, give him $10 million and drop him into the suburb of any major city in America, you can have a church of tens of thousands of people in no time. There's a really well-defined playbook that you could follow, that you could, you couldn't, you don't even have to be able to preach your way out of a wet paper bag to be able to get 10,000 people in the suburbs of Atlanta. But what happens is, uh, a lot of time, a lot of those things that are built by self-effort don't work when when the drug addicted single mom with stage four cancer walks in the door. Right. 
So what happens is why, why do we build things the way we build based on self-effort and human systems? Because it works quicker. But it doesn't last longer because most of those same things I just talked about could not survive a changeover in leadership, could not survive something, that, you know, uh, despoiling the reputation of the leader, you know, couldn't last because they're, they're built on hay and stubble. And so what happens is a lot of times we feel like we'll make quicker progress by trying to just will ourselves into it, but it's not lasting progress. And then... We get frustrated because we're like, I thought I've already been delivered to this 12 times. And we're answering the altar call for the 10th time, wondering why it's not working. It's because the last nine times we were just trying to white knuckle our way. God, I promise I'm going to do better in my own strength. And we didn't receive by faith the word of righteousness. That's right. There's a verse in Romans 3 says that perfect wholeness comes to him who has had the declaration of righteousness proclaimed over him. And the, why do so many Christians not seem to be walking in perfect wholeness? Because most of us have never actually heard the declaration of righteousness heard over us. God, Jesus Christ became sin in the flesh that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might become as we ought to be in Christ. And if we can't receive that, we're going to be caught on this same cycle for the rest of our lives. That, that is the way forward is to start by faith. There's a verse, there's another verse in Galatians. You who started in the spirit, are you going to continue in the flesh? God did not tag us and say, okay, now it's all on you. He didn't say, okay, I saved you. Now you earn it from here. That's not how that's not how it went. And so are your actions important? Sure, they're going to have consequences. No one's denying that. But we have to believe what the Lord said about us before we can start to make those right decisions. And so so here's here's my words and we could if we could get some altar call music going or something. Um we're fixing to land the plane here but if if you are trying to appease the voice of that taunting voice of Ishmael, you're always going to have something. If the house was a little cleaner, if I lost a little bit of weight, if my kids stopped acting so crazy, if I had, uh, if I could uh, do a little bit better in this sin cycle, if I could uh, help it, if I, once I'd serve the church, but then I'm going to be okay. No, you're not, because it's like Charlie Brown in the football. The goalpost is going to keep moving. You're going you're gonna, to uh, accomplish what you thought you were going to do, and there's still going to be something taunting you as long as you'll listen to it. <laughs> you've, you've laid hands on 10 sick people and got them well. The 11th one doesn't work. You're just going to be like, man, if I'm, I must not be there yet. Right. What there's all, because there's no substitute for nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's no substitute for the blood. There's no substitute for being a new creation. And I'm telling you, as we're, we're not going to be able to mature if we can't receive righteousness. And it's in that moment that we're being weaned. The enemy's going to want to run his mouth. Satan's name means accuser. Somehow we've given God Satan's job. 
And so I'm telling you today, put Ishmael's voice out of your camp. I'm gonna I'm gonna end with this, and I'll see if Pastor has something else to say. But in the Old Testament, if someone came to make a sin offering, at no point did the priest inspect the person bringing the sin offering. They never inspected the sinner. They always inspected the lamb. And if the lamb was sufficient, the sin was dealt with. And I'm telling you, some of you are, I think that that you're step for, and listen, I'm, I have the tendency to be my own psychologist at the time, right? I'm, uh, I'm pretty introspective. So I I get this a lot, but you think that you can just go analyze all your problems and bring them to the surface. And that's going to be the way that's going to fix. No, 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 no. It's not a matter of inspecting yourself. It's a matter of inspecting the lamb. And I promise you, the lamb is enough. The lamb was found without spot or wrinkle or blemish. So I feel like I just, I just want to open these altars. If you've been dealing with the voice of Ishmael, if you've been taunted by the idea that you're not enough, if you've been eating from that tree, if you've been uh, dealing with harassment from the enemy that you're not there, that you're not mature enough, you're not spiritual, and, and you have not been able to receive the word of righteousness, I want to invite you to begin to come and seek the Lord this day. And I'm believing and I'm praying right now, God, I as people begin to come, I ask that you would carry them into this revelation of righteousness. I ask that the wind of the Spirit would give them lift into this dimension, Lord. And I ask God that Ishmael would be driven from our camp this day you can just begin to make your way to the altar if that's you don't listen to it another day